0: When Hashi Mohammed arrived in London from Kenya as a nine-year-old, separated from his mother, and still grieving the recent and tragic loss of his father, he couldn't possibly have foreseen the incredible journey ahead. A journey of social mobility littered with hurdles and barriers, some clear and obvious and others much more subtle. Against all the odds, it would seem, Hashi is now a prominent London barrister, broadcaster, and author of his new, hugely successful book, People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain. In it, Hashi discusses the many variables that make up the possibility of being successful in Britain today, such as the wealth and profession of your parents, the school you went to, the lucky breaks you get, the unwritten social rules, language, race, class, on and on. Hashi is a hugely entertaining personality with an incredible personal story and template for empowering us all for the better wherever we are on the social spectrum. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favorite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favorite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest's recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue, and the podcast episode itself, so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests, Favourite Places in London, click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening, best wishes, and keep safe. Steve Well, I am absolutely thrilled and delighted to have on the podcast today, the one and only Hashi Muhammad. Welcome to the podcast, Your London Legacy, Hashi. It's an absolute delight and privilege to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Steve. I'm very well. It is the end, well, the middle of September, and it feels like it's the middle of July.
0: So uh, all well. It's a mad, mad world out there. And it's one of the questions I was going to ask you, actually, was um, how COVID has affected you personally, and also the message you're trying to get out there. And, and um, we'll, we'll come on to that in, in, in a bit, perhaps. But um, I want to start by talking about your story. But I want to start because your your recent book, uh, People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain, I think it's safe to say has been a, a bit of a roaring success by any standards. And you've, you've garnered a lot of uh, plaudits for the book. I mean, is that taking you by surprise? What has taken me by surprise
1: is the way in which people I never thought about when I was writing it have been impacted by it. So I knew that I was writing it for certain groups of people. But if I ever contemplated some, I, I, I have a bunch of letters here, some person living in rural Devon who enjoys sort of bird watching and is nearing retirement sending me a letter in the post about how much this book has impacted them that has surprised me a great deal so that's
0: i i assume that's not the audience you originally envisaged would take uh, take interest in exactly it. exactly and i'm very
1: pleased about that and and i wish to get that to as mu- a bigger an audience as much as possible and as quickly as possible
0: because the book is obviously about social mobility and about inclusivity and diversity in modern day Britain and your story in London coming over from Somalia and Kenya, I'm going to start maybe perversely at the end of your book uh, at your conclusion simply because you say, uh, and I have read it. I have read the book cover to cover it. It's, it's marked all over. Yeah. Well, I, I do my research has to be said, <laughs> never let it be said that I don't research my guests. Uh, you say in the, your conclusion, this book has been deeply painful for you to write, and you wanted to stop many times for various reasons, not least you say, you know, rejection and the family feuds and what's what, why? Why was it so painful and difficult for you? It was
1: really painful because um, I set out to write a book about social mobility. I set out to write a book about how myself and my family arrived in the UK as as refugees. And growing up in the most deprived areas of London and trying to basically make a life for ourselves. And this was the first time that I actually looked figuratively in the rear view mirror to assess what happened, what went right, what went wrong, how things have turned out that could have turned out worse, some things that could have turned out better. And so. It was painful to write because it was really the first time when I got an opportunity to really dig up that history, to really dig up that legacy, to really dig up that past in a way that really sought to interrogate that past in a proper meaningful way for the first time. And I felt myself really emotionally kind of impacted by that and in a way that I never foresaw. And then the the last thing I'd say, which is also amazing, is there are certain things that I remembered as being relatively good, but actually when I spoke to a few people afterwards, they were saying actually things were not as nice as you remember it. And there were things that I remembered quite badly, but actually in hindsight weren't as bad as I remembered. False memory syndrome. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That false memory syndrome was definitely brought to the fore when I was writing this, because you realize actually how much your memory plays tricks on you. And you realize how much that actually then impacts your experiences, your relationships, the way you see the world, the way you see yourself, and then the choices that you make thereafter.
0: So do you feel like it was a cathartic experience to go to go through and relive all these experiences? Because when, how old are you now, by the way? I turned, no, not at all. I
1: turned 37 last Thursday.
0: Because 37, you're a, you're a young man. uh, You're a Uh, young man. I'm uh, I'm in my mid, I'm in my mid (laughs) fifties going on 21. But, but life, life, life passes you by in a flash. And when you experience life in the way you have, with so much trauma and so much, um, so many things that have happened to you in your life—dramatic things, not just traumatic in a negative way, but in a positive way as well—life goes by, and you just don't have time to stop and think about where Absolutely. you've got to and how you have got there.
1: Absolutely, and and actually, I feel when I look back, and when I looked back at the book um, when I was writing it, technically I sort of finished it when I was thirty-five, and I remember think, thinking to myself. That's the first third of my life that I have now interrogated and written a book about, and I am now putting a bookmark here. And you are absolutely right that you rarely ever get that opportunity to assess what's going on in your life, assess how things have happened, and things just fly by. So it was definitely a cathartic experience. It was definitely an experience that allowed me to be at peace with that past. And interestingly, you know, I've been writing it for two years and, and finished it last December. And it's funny how the people I knew and the friends that I'm very close to being with me at that time, so many of them who've known me for so long have since read the book and have actually said to me, that they know more about me through the book than they ever did in the past because there were so many things in my life that I never really shared that they only found out once they read the book. And that's also quite an interesting experience.
0: Is that not shared because you are, well, you're clearly not an introverted person, but because you keep your feelings and emotions wrapped up or because it's it's an inherited sort of family trait That you don't share emotions with with everyone? It's a combination of, of, of both because I always tell people that
1: actually even though you might listen to a podcast like this or even though you might have picked up and read my book, you think you know me very well because I've divulged so many personal things and so much trauma. But actually I really think and I really do believe sometimes that I'm also intensely private because I'm only letting you in as far as I think is necessary for the purpose of what I'm doing. So I'm only letting you in for the purpose of explaining why I've got to where I've got to through this book. And therefore a lot of the things that I'm telling you in the book are a necessary prerequisite for you to understand my story, but no more, not a word, more, not a sentence, more, not a chapter, more.
0: Is there more that you should Oh, there's
1: loads, there's loads. There's loads that I've left out. There's loads that I have left out purposefully. You know, there's loads that I've left out about the relationship that I have with certain members of the family that I looked and I thought, actually, what's that going to benefit anyone other than bring things that are that should be buried to the fore? What's the point of going through that issue when it adds nothing to the question of social mobility and what I'm writing about? So I think for me, it was really, really important. And I learned that. I learned that from... Uh, an author called Darren, uh, I don't know if you've come across him, Darren McGarvey, who wrote that book um, called The uh, Poverty Safari. And he is a fantastic author. Definitely get that book, Poverty Safari, Darren McGarvey. And it's based on him growing up in Glasgow. And it's a fantastic book. And it's about him growing up in the most traumatic, s- sad, difficult, drug-ridden, and real poverty in Glasgow. And I met him in the middle of when I was writing the book. And the book is a fantastic, a lot very, very successful. And he and I met at the Edinburgh uh, Fringe Festival a couple of years ago. And I was in the middle of writing the book and I was in the middle of writing 200,000 words. And then I was going to get my editor to just tell me what's going to stay and what's going to be out. But I remember when I met him and I said to him, you've done amazing things. And and how, when looking back, how do you feel about what you've said in the book? And he said to me, one regret that he has is that one of his brothers is a drug addict and went to prison and he talks about his brother in the book a great deal. And he found you know, that when so many people started reading the book, and his brother found out about the book and what he had written about him, his brother lapsed into drug problems, went into prison again, and so much trauma then followed. And I remember thinking back, I've got brothers who are in jail, I've got family who's on the wrong side of the law, I've got families who have got their own traumas and difficulties and problems. And I, some of that I wanted to bring to the fore to kind of say, this is my legacy. This is where I've come from. But actually, when I met him and I said, that's by the grace of God, because I thought, I've chosen to write this book. I've chosen to tell my story. They haven't. So they shouldn't be collateral damage. And I think that's the kind of distinctions that I have made that I'm really, really grateful that I did. And that's because of that chance encounter that I had with Darren McGarvey.
0: Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, you allude to it throughout the book. Certain issues, you know, you say fa- you family feuds, for example, and arguments and things like that. But you've been polite and politically, you know, PC, I suppose, by not bringing them into your into your story, which is all about social mobility. Ultimately, everybody has, you know, <laughs> everybody has family issues, and it's not necessary to, uh, to to absolutely. What do they say? Wash your wash your dirty linen in public. Absolutely, they say.
1: absolutely. And I said, you know, and as, as you, exactly as you highlighted i don't shy away from the fact that there was conflict there were issues there were problems but actually that and talking about that isn't going to advance the cause of what i'm
0: trying to talk about in the book so there's no need to go into it any further full stop so how do you see the book i mean is the book of is it, it, it is, it's not a self-help book as such but there is self-help elements in there it's not a book on It's not an economic book. It's not a book on social policy per se. It's a bit of everything, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit of everything. And actually,
1: it isn't a true memoir either, right? Because I don't tell you everything and I haven't lived long enough to tell you anything. Um, I've still got two
0: more decades. Uh, to well, you. there's plenty of people who've written their their autobiographies at the age of 12.
1: <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, I just thought, what have I done? I've actually, I haven't really lived, so we can't. You can't call it. You can't call it a memoir, really. You know, i still got. I, as I as I as I say, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? with You one are word? certainly. We've got an explicit uh, rating. So I always say that that there is still plenty of time to fuck this up. You know, so there's no point in 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 banging on about this as a as a memoir. But but you are absolutely. right right, that it's part self-help, part memoir, part, please read this as a teacher. Please read this as a parent. Please read this as somebody who wants to mentor somebody. Please read this as a HR person. Please read this as a manager who wants to understand the workforce. Please read this as an individual who wants to better themselves and actually uh, wants to understand the world around them. So I think it's a bit of everything. And actually, it's a really it's really perceptive of you to pick that up because I remember when I first started writing it and a lot of people would say to me, who's your audience? And I hated that question because I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to play this game because when you ask me, who's your audience, what's actually happening is that you're asking me that because you're trying to pigeonhole me into a place that only fits in your head. And I'm not interested in that. That's a marketing ploy. Exactly. If you're curious about the world that you live in, and you're curious about a crazy life's journey that I've had so far, and you're interested in the question of, a, of becoming a more equal society? This is your book for you. If you're interested in tittle tattle and 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 sex and whatever, go go and pick us up Fifty Shades of Grey. You know,
0: it's funny you should say that. We've just finished watching a a box set with the uh, the actor who went on to uh, performing well performs probably the, not the correct <laughs> word, You know what I mean? <laughs> I forget his name. Uh, wasn't wasn't very good. So we we've got to talk about your story obviously because that is that is the backdrop to to the the book itself so just give us a potted version of your story as a child growing up in in Kenya and separating from your family to come over to London
1: yeah so we 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 found ourselves in mid uh, 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 late sort of 70s early 80s my parents met in Kenya and they were both sort of looking for their lives and legacy and opportunities Uh, somewhere outside of somalia but actually in the end they wanted to go back to somalia because that's where their family is that's where all the legacy and community is and so in the early 1990s before they were contemplating actually going back to somalia to be able to you know reunite with the rest of their families and do something the war broke out in 1991 now, my mother was previously married before she met my father, had six children who were living in Somalia, then had another six with my father in Kenya. And in 1991, the war broke out, which meant that everyone in Somalia had left and sought help wherever they could, which meant that a lot of my siblings ended up in North America. Some ended up in Canada, some ended up in America. Uh, and some of them came to Kenya, Ethiopia. And I even have, you know, distant relatives who ended up in Scandinavia. My father's idea was, we'll stay because actually I've been here for the best part of a decade. We are fine. We're not going to follow this sort of wave of people who are seeking uh, uh, help elsewhere. I think we're going to be fine just here. And then two years passed and he dies in a car crash in Kenya. And you were how old? And I was nine years old and he, he was barely in his 40s. So he then dies and then there's a decision that has to be made which is, does a mother who has never been formally educated, who's given birth to 12 children, who doesn't work and who doesn't have the the means to be able to support a big family, actually stay in Kenya and make something out of this life? Or does she follow this wave of people who are going wherever they can to seek asylum? And my uncle, who at the time was studying in Italy, made that judgment call for us to come to the
0: United Kingdom. This is your dad's brother. My dad's brother, brother Yeah. What is your Um, recollection of the decision process at this time? Were you naive to the whole, what was going on? It's a very good question because I interrogated this when I was thinking about this in the
1: book, because the reason why I've never fully really contemplated what that decision-making process was, certainly I know that I wasn't involved in that decision-making process. But what I do remember though, is that it was a very short space of time. So when my father dies in April, 1993, we fight. We're fight. we in London by June, July. End of June, we're here. So actually, the short period of time is when in January onwards, January 1993 onwards, there are people who are fleeing and going to seek asylum wherever they could. By January 1993, I've got siblings who are in American Canada. And then I've got an aunt who's ended up here. And then everybody's like, well, we're not going anywhere. My father's here. And when my father dies and he's buried, my uncle comes back from Ke- from Italy to Kenya and says, "What's the point of staying here? You're going to be running out of money and means within a year." There is this momentum of people going, catch the wave, and actually it was the best decision ever made.
0: And presumably, the asylum process back then was fairly straightforward. Fairly straightforward. You're from Somalia. Somebody meets
1: you at the airport, speaks to me, speaks to you in Somali, and pretty much you're given asylum on arrival. None of this, what's going on in these days where where you have to wait for years. I mean, of course, regularizing that and going through the process and getting a passport in the end took the best part of a decade, but it was relatively straightforward. And then my mum would, my mum who'd stayed behind because she wasn't keen on the decision that was made joined us four years later. And of course, you know, that another trauma begins from there where we have to try and make sense of being here as... As unaccompanied children, no language, no understanding of the culture, and then we were staying with an aunt who we'd just met and and it's just you know and everything else you can imagine in between
0: were you able to keep in sort of fairly regular contact with your mother and your uncle <sighs> you
1: say fairly i mean it, it was it was touch and go back in those days, obviously no internet, no real uh means of whatsapp or anything like that but I do remember i do remember actually one funny story which i've never told anyone, so this is a a, a, a but uh, an exclusive, a, an exclusive for you <laughs> in Wembley, where I grew up. Um, we, I, I found this phone box that was obviously faulty, and uh, you'd get about three or four quid um, of coins. And I just, I figured out. I, t- I don't know how I figured this out. So I can't remember how this happened. But this phone booth had this thing where you'd put in about four pounds, and you'd call Kenya from this phone box. Okay, zero, zero, two, five, four, etc. And then for four pounds, you're barely going to get a minute's call. But what was critical was that about 56 seconds, you hang up and the four pounds drop out.
0: <laughs> so you kept repeating the process.
1: So I kept on repeating this process. Rinse and repeat. I love it. <laughs> and I remember doing that for the best part of six months. And then every, every sort of 20 times, you'd lose your money because you didn't do it on the actual yeah. second.
0: Well, British phone blocks have never worked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I don't remember much more than that because they obviously died soon after, right? But I remember that being a big part of the of the phone booth. Um, so that's how we kept in touch, really. Nobody wrote letters or
0: anything like that. No, sure. You mentioned Wembley. Wembley is a place I'm very familiar with, not because my team get there very often, but because... Um, Who's your family- team? I'm a Spurs, Spurs uh, boy. Well, Spurs boys, you
1: were using Wembley for for the best part of three years. We did;
0: it, it was our second home. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's probably probably the last time I get there in my, my <laughs> life. <laughs> Certainly after our start to the season on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. pretty shoddy. Well, well are, you, I mean, you, you you're, 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 you're relying on Mourinho, so uh, yeah, you're going to be messed up anyway. Uh, you, are you
1: a gooner? I am for not actually. I'm going to send you a picture of me as a 13 year old wearing a Liverpool shirt. So I'm not accused of being a a glory hunter um so i was a big liverpool fan back in the days of john barnes and stan collymore and ian rush and
0: yeah i got a lot of respect for liverpool and steve Steve mcmahon you know those were the days those were the days that's fine that's fine even though you stuffed us in madrid last year that's that's fine and raheem sterling
1: went to a local school right near where i live. It, it, what, in Wembley? Raheem Sterling is a Wembley boy. He's from he Wembley. Really?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: He grew up in Stonebridge, technically, but the school he went to is in North
0: Wembley. Right. Well, I know Wembley. Fo- football aside, I know Wembley very well. got family. Uh, my my grandparents lived in Neasden, and I've done a lot of work in and around the Wembley area uh, over the years. So I know in the, in the heyday... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, Do you it, it know?
1: Wasn't... Sorry to interrupt you, Steve. No, no. In Neasden, there is a house with a blue pack where... Bob Marley and the Whalers' state right? Is there
0: in okay. Is there really? Yeah, okay. come on! If you're I... running the Your London Legacy uh, I Podcast, us... you it's should a... know this. I should. That's the wonderful thing about London. <laughs> there's so many things I've yet to find out about it. Every time I ask a guest, you know, as you'll you'll do at the end of the show, hopefully you tell us a couple of places. There's always one place I've never heard of, or never never been to. That's that's what's so cool about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, so that there's a blue plaque. I can't remember the road itself. Well, you should look it up afterwards because the Bob, Bob Marley, when he first came, when he was a complete no unknown and hadn't toured and hadn't been become big or anything like that, he stayed in this terraced house in Neasden with the whalers for like I think six months or something. And now it has a blue plaque there.
0: Well, I guess Neasden has to be famous for something because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else apart from my grandparents living there on the borders of Wembley. So you went to school in Wembley, in high school in Wembley. I did. I, I can imagine this was in the early mid-90s, I yes, think it was. It's yes, a bit, yes. Uh, London Borough of Brent. I London Borough
1: of Brent, it. one of the most deprived, rough, yeah. rough areas. Uh, I, I, I recount this in the book, you may recall, but London Borough of Brent and Lewisham uh, or Newham, I can't remember which, I think it's Newham. London Borough of Newham and London Borough of Brent were the two places where the murder rates were so high in that period, that especially black-on-black crime, that Operation Trident, which was the Metropolitan Police's force um, operation to deal with that, was started out in Brent and um, I'm pretty sure Newham uh, 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 at the time. So very, very rough, very, very difficult. '93, of course, when we had just arrived, a couple of months after the murder of
0: Stephen Lawrence. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. Now this is, there's a whole chapter in your book on education, and the importance of education in social mobility, and you, you, you quite rightly, in my opinion, make make the valid point that education, whilst it's crucial to have a good education, isn't the be all and end all of you know climbing up the slippery slope, as it as it as it were, the slippery pole. But you had a you had a, a tough time in education, I think it's fair to say. But at the same time. Looking back, you found someone, I think, was her name Mrs. Adler?
1: Yes. A, a, teacher yes. Called,
0: a teacher called Mrs. Adler, who turned out to be a fairly inspirational teacher in your in your life.
1: She was phenomenal. Miss, Miss Adler was, uh, was somebody who grew up in the local area, who was schooled in the local area. Her parents went to the local school that she was now teaching at. And she was somebody who had that unbelievable empathy And understanding of the local community. Incidentally, I I, I tracked her down in Canada many years later, where she had emigrated to, and I asked her about this. And she had, and and she obviously spent a lot of time with us. She spent one big summer, which I recount in the book, where she spent her own money, gave us her own time to paint our form class in a way that then allowed us to really feel as part of the community. And I talk about this experience of having spent a summer painting this one classroom that was our form class that we were going to spend a a significant amount of time in.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely story.
1: Yeah, and it, it was a real moment for me where I think the sense of belonging first came to the fore. It was the first time when I felt like I was becoming part of British society, part of why I wanted to be part of you know this community and it was a real big big part of that story and what's fascinating about that is sadly i haven't really included this part in the book but because i didn't i didn't know whether she was going to be comfortable with me including this in the book but but miss adler's family had come to the uk fleeing the holocaust and so she was jewish and and kind of looked at us and she said you know i understood what it meant for you guys to be in this place, not knowing anything and not understanding anything, because that was the experience of my parents. And that's why it was important for me, she told me um, when I interviewed her for the book, that I gave you guys that opportunity to set your roots down in some way. And I think that was why it was such an important story for me to tell. And so many teachers write to me to this day about that and say how important it was for them to hear about that. Now, I don't know whether health and safety rules and risk assessments would ever allow such a thing to happen again, but but I just think that that's quite important because it made a big difference.
0: Uh, It's absolutely crucial. And I can talk from sort of secondhand experience because my wife is a special needs teacher in the, uh, well, she's recently taken early retirement, she helps kids with uh, special needs and supports families with kids with special needs. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that's the sort of thing she she always did and, and, and would have done and continues to do is to do the things that not the regular teacher would do. But she understands kids like you having a hard time trying to break through and, you know, overcome social obstacles and barriers and language. Talk talk to me about language, how that was a problem for you coming over here.
1: Yeah, I mean, language was obviously a huge barrier because, We didn't come from a a community where English was a second language in the sense of we were born in Kenya, but both of our parents were Somali, so we were spoken to in Somali to begin with. Then our second language was Kiswahili. And so we're growing up speaking Swahili and you know Somali within the community. And then at the age of nine, you turn up here trying to make sense of the English language, fresh off the boat, literally and then subsequently trying to figure out, A, why you're here, the trauma of having to just bury your father, you don't understand the language, you don't understand the culture, you don't understand how to communicate, you don't understand anything. And that part of the journey was really, really difficult because language is such an important basic function. And if you're lacking in it, then it can make a huge, huge difference to whether or not you actually can integrate.
0: Could you speak any English at all? Was there any English?
1: Very basic what, the stuff from the movies? movies, or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The stuff that you watch from movies that you can sort of pick up here and there, every other word or whatever. But actually, very, very basic. But then, if you're a nine year old, you're going to pick up language very, very quickly. Yeah.
0: But were you taught English as a second language when you came over to the UK? Or See, that's
1: a really it... good question because. So many of my friends who I've spoken to grew up in Canada, for example. Canada has an actual policy that new arrivals, especially new immigrant arrivals who can't speak English, are given specific extra tuition lessons to deal with picking up the English language. We didn't have any of that. It was literally a single swim situation where you're straight into a classroom. I talk about a story in the book, I think, about how so, some... A young lady was trying to tell me that my flies were undone and I was looking up in the sky, looking for a fly. I thought she was trying to tell me, look at the fly up there, but I didn't understand the sort of idioms of, of, of your flies are undone, you know, and stuff like that. You just think actually that gives you an idea of how basic my language was.
0: Do you not find it bizarre in the extreme that that is how you make your living now as a, as a yeah. person who you, <laughs> you uses language and verbosity to, if I could be polite, you know, uh, to, to make a career that's it and and to defend people and prosecute cases and you know whatever you do in the courts
1: language is at the heart of everything that i do whether it's the law in the courtroom trying to persuade people or on paper trying to persuade people or in my book trying to tell a story or broadcasting on the radio trying to talk to people and so yeah it is quite ironic and I'm very proud of that fact and and it's one of those things that shows you that 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 life's mysteries and 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 power and opportunities can arrive in the most remarkably you know
0: inconsistent and unforeseen ways. We can't talk about social mobility of course without it's the first probably the first main, main chapter in your book about race and class and how how they are barriers to progress. Just talk, talk to those issues and how you, how you saw them at the time when you were here, the, the obstacles that you found in your way, both real sort of tangible ones and the, the less obvious ones and how they have changed, if at all, over the years.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's impossible to ignore the question of social mobility's impact on race, class, socioeconomic background, education. Now, specifically looking at the question of class and, and race, and of course, these are often interlinked and the intersectional ways in which they work together can have an impact. Now, as I sort of talk about in the book, if you are a, a black man who has come from Jamaica through the, either through the, um, the, 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 the Windrush generation or from Ghana, it often means that actually you have a connection to the country in some form whether it's through that colonial legacy whether it's through the religion of christianity or sometimes as the case may be in the in the context of those who come from jamaica uh, an actual english name let's not forget the impact of a black guy called hashim mohammed who's muslim and who can't speak the language you're going to have a much harder time than a philip dale from jamaica who has a connection to 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 britain in some much more cogent way so racism affects people in different ways even within the context of them being black or non-white or asian and it affects different people in terms of how they came to this country the relationship they have with this country The relationship that this country has with their country of origin, it affects people who might have come here with some wealth, as opposed to those who came to work in the cotton mills and and the factories. And you know, a black man with a bit of wealth coming here to be able to buy something or a property is not going to be in the same experience as an Asian man who's going straight to you know Oldham and Bolton to work in the factories to try and make sense of what that looks like. And so. I talk about the issue of race and class and, and socioeconomic background in hopefully a more nuanced way than we may have uh, become accustomed to it's literally not as simple as the black and white issue it's much more layered it's much more complicated and if we're going to address the issue of social mobility it's too lazy and too easy to simple simply cobble together everyone who is non white and just say, you all fit into this category of BAME. And that's what I try and deal with in that chapter to hopefully give people a much more insightful look at the way in which race and class intersect in many ways, but also crucially where they intersect on the question of social mobility.
0: I also want to ask you, I'm mindful of uh, the time, and I know you've got a very important Boiler person coming, coming Yes, back. well, he's already here, so he's in the middle of... Uh, yeah. oh, I'm surprise, right. okay. um, surprised he's not banging uh, <laughs> at the moment, but he's here. Oh, that, well, that normally happens when we're recording. You you talk about things, imagination and confidence and and luck. How do those sort of three things intertwine? How do you, how do you mesh those together to, to form, if not a methodology, a, a, a way of progressing up yeah, the Yeah, social... I think...
1: I think the question, it it must begin with the question of confidence in the sense that you need to have the confidence to believe that you have a purpose, you have the worth, you have the abilities to succeed in this society based on what you're good at, what you're not so good
0: at, and what you want to achieve. The obvious question there has to be is why did why did you have the confidence and the belief to push yourself forward and to write letters, ad hoc letters to you know senior people at the BBC, whereas others wouldn't even know where to start to even have that thought process?
1: I I think it comes from honestly no epiphany or any sort of a uh, 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 Bible. or or I don't have anything that gives me access to some divine intervention. It comes from a very simple place, which is that I just was not happy with the status quo. It really is as simple as that. I thought to myself, I am just not happy with being in a situation where I do not have control over my life, where I am not happy, where I cannot do what I want to do, where I cannot achieve what I want to achieve. That is honestly as basic as it began.
0: My feeling is there's a lot of people who have that feeling but do very little with it, are not not proactive in doing anything. So that's where
1: the question of imagination comes in. So when we talk about confidence, we then have to think about imagination. So imagination is really that ability to imagine for yourself a way in which you can aspire to be something different not for the sake of just simply making money, but actually something that you want and need to be fulfilled. I remember one of the first things I ever wanted and imagined for myself was to become a footballer, right? Quite apart from the fact that, well, I was probably good enough to play for Spurs, but not much else.
0: (laughs) Steady. (laughs) I've gone off you very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Quite
1: apart from the fact that I, I, I did not have the talent to make it to that level, um it was looking back on it is fascinating because I now realize the only reason why I was obsessed with football was that it was the only thing that I saw as being truly meritocratic. Just think about that. Football, actually, in many ways, I believe, and sports in America, for example, one of the main reasons that it's so dominated by black people, I believe, is, is, is probably the only world in many ways, that is truly meritocratic. How good you are will determine how well you go into that team, and it's the same with class. If you think about it, you're not seeing an old Etonian being striker for Liverpool or Tottenham, are you? But you are going to see that working-class white kids from the East End, from from Merseyside, from uh, Greater Manchester, who are dirt poor who are getting into those teams. And there is a reason for that. It's because it's the one of the few things that they can have full control over, coupled with the fact that obviously they have an enormous amount of talent, God-given talent, that is then harnessed very early on, which then propels them. And so what I say in the book is that you need to be able to figure out what that is very early on. What are you good at? What are you... Not so good at what do you want to focus on and push for yourself because football is in one of those very few random places that things are genuinely meritocratic and sport generally, so that's where the imagination comes in, and then perceptibly earlier, you were talking about me now being able to use language to command a room to to do the job that I'm doing, and so on and so forth well actually. That is also another example of me identifying after my football career collapsed that this was an area, this was something I was good at. People listened when I spoke. I could debate well. I could persuade well. And actually, these are, this is maybe an area that I need to pursue. Hence, why I find myself where I am today, doing what I'm doing. So that confidence, that imagination, then leads you on to that picture of then pushing yourself to to achieve but then of course you need that luck you need that break you need that opportunity and luck is something that often people leave out from their success stories because it's a it's a it's a nice thing to to pretend that everything that you have
0: achieved is down to simply your own hard work right you don't want to contemplate the possibility yeah you get you you give those wonderful examples of jeff bezos and um it was the other, you, Don, you know,
1: Donald Trump, Bill Gates, yeah, just Mark Zuckerberg, a million, yeah, yeah, all of those guys. All of those guys leave out the detail of why they are lucky to be where they are, and I think that is insidious because then what you do is you set up a lot of people up for failure.
0: Uh, ab- absolutely, I totally get that, but there's two sides to luck. There's getting the lucky thing, whatever it is, whether it's money, whether it's opportunity, whether it's a mentor. Who looks after you but it's then taking action on that absolutely. situation absolutely. because with, without that action it doesn't matter how lucky i mean there's plenty of people who have been given money and you know pissed pissed it away oh, frankly yeah.
1: oh yeah and, uh, or a lot yeah. of people who are who have the opportunity right in front of them
0: and don't even see it and don't see it yeah or we'll see it and do nothing with it absolutely just yeah. so there yeah. is
1: that for sure there is absolutely mm. that
0: there's no doubt yeah. in my mind well I, as I say, I'm mindful of the time. I'm mindful that you've got – it's your second podcast chat today. Yes. Um, hopefully this one's been a little bit different from the previous no, one. No, it's done. definitely very different. Very different. Uh, good. I, I, I'm delighted, and I'm delighted we got an exclusive as well. So I'm not going to let you go like I do with all my guests without asking you to mention a couple of places in London because you, you, you live in London. Where, where do you live nowadays in London? So where I still live somewhere? in Wembley.
1: I still haven't yeah. – I live in the in in between Wembley and Preston Road area.
0: Okay. So tell us a couple of places that are particularly personal or relevant to you in London, for whatever reason, uh, that we may may or may not have heard of.
1: Yeah, so I think the first place, I've been racking my brains about this. Um, The first place is is that um, it is not an actual place, but rather a concept that you will be familiar with, which is the London Ring. Now, I like walking and I like hiking a lot. And as you I'm sure no the London ring is a, a walking tour that circles around London some of it is in huge parks and some of it is in the sort of city area and that London ring comes to a huge country park right next to where I live in northwest London called Fryant country park
0: yeah it's been and, in the news for
1: the wrong reasons recently and recently had those horrible two murders of yeah. course as you yeah. know But it is uh, beautiful. It's stunning, and I go there in the mornings to walk, and I sometimes go there in the evenings, and I absolutely love that open space. So the London Ring is the powerful experience that I love about London.
0: We've not had that one before, so we'll give that a big tick. That's the first one. And then the
1: second one is an obvious one, but I have to say it because it was the first date I had with my wife, and that was at the Tate. So that's a I'm sure you've had people mention that before. Uh, and I don't think we have actually.
0: Which Tate? The, modern, Is the Tate it's modern Tate Modern.
1: It's Tate Modern, not not Tate Britain. It was Tate Modern, and that's where I met my 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 wife, who uh, my now wife, then um, per- person I was going to meet for for a quick coffee, who then took me to her uh, private members' dining area in the top.
0: Oh, very swish.
1: Very swish. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, I'm definitely keeping this one.
0: Yeah, but you didn't anticipate that when you're a nine year old in. Uh, Canada, <laughs> <did you? laughs>
1: but here's well, another. You know, Here's another interesting fact. My wife was born two streets apart in Nairobi, and her family were there to seek asylum, but her family ended up in Sweden, where she sought asylum and grew up. She then came to the UK to study in Cambridge, moved to London, and we met in London 25 years later, having basically me grown up and sought asylum in the UK, and she in in Stockholm. And we met at the Tate in London.
0: Star-crossed lovers, if ever there were, it's a, incredible. Couple. Yeah, it, it is. It, it is remarkable. But then your whole life is remarkable. And I can only recommend people, if they haven't already done so, and I can't imagine there's anybody out there who hasn't done so, to, to rush out and buy uh, "People Like Us." What it takes to make it. What it takes to make it in modern Britain by Hashim Muhammad. It, it, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I'm not just blowing smoke, as they say. It, it, it is. I do a lot of. Book reading for for my guests and that was one I whizzed through it's fascinating from every from a personal angle from a socio economic from every you know from a self-help point of view if you just want to look at it from that and take a few golden nuggets from that that that's great
1: thank you so much for having me on your podcast Steve.
0: it's an absolute pleasure Hashi I'm delighted that you've taken the time to be on the show Thank you ever so much. Keep up the good work. What, what's next? You got another book up your sleeve coming along?
1: Well, a couple of things are really, I mean, one is the book is the book of the week on Radio 4, um, the second week of October.
0: Fantastic. Well
1: done. And other than that, I'm planning a couple of Radio 4 documentaries on different topics. So whatever I end up doing, I'm going to try my best
0: to turn that into a book. Well, so we'll see. Brilliant. So um, you're going to stick with the... Uh the, the barrister ship you're going to stay there. oh doing, yes the, that's the, the bread Lord. and butter yeah. That that's what yeah. pays for the boiler yeah <laughs> brilliant and finally how can people find you get in touch with you if, if indeed they can yes
1: I am I am on Twitter I uh, the, I have a website hashimohamed.com the book is available everywhere in your local bookshop Waterstones or Amazon wherever you get your book and um, yeah so reach out to me on all the usual platforms and I'd love to know what you make of the book
0: Perfect. Once again, thank you very much, Hashi. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. Steve.
0: I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month, where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities, only available via via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy.